This morning, I wanted to, I was reminded of a, one time during a fellowship meal, I, uh, I was overhearing two boys, they were going through the line, and uh, this was pre-COVID, uh, so there were slices of bread laid out, and uh, one of the fellowship staff was there saying, no, no boys, only one, you know, God is watching, so be sure to take just one. And uh, they got to the end of the line where, you know, all the desserts are, pies and brownies and cookies and everything. And the one boy leaned over to the other and says, take as much as you want. God's watching the bread. (laughs) I can appreciate that. Um, So uh, Luke asked, someone usually asks me sometime during the week what the title of my Sermon's going to be, and I, I don't know during the middle of the week. I'm still, I was still working on my message an hour ago, and uh, so I, I just kind of said it's on Mark 6.30 to 7.30, uh, and there's a lot of information in there. And uh, as I was going through the message this morning, kind of going through everything I had written down here, and it was going 45 minutes, and I thought, this is not going to work. There's going to be a mass exodus somewhere around 3... 35 minutes into this thing, so um, I pretty much scrapped everything I had, and uh, so I'm going to try to go through this a little differently this morning. Um, I usually have a very orderly sermon printed out, and I kind of read most of it, and so that's not going to work. We're going to be here until 12 o'clock, and so we've got a lot of information here. So where we're going to start is where kind of Luke, uh, or Pastor Luke, left off uh, last, last time, which is in Mark uh, 30. And what we see here is the apostles uh, are gathered together with Jesus, and they're reporting to him about their mission trip that he sent them out on earlier in the chapter. He sent them out two by two. He gave them the power to, to do miracles, to heal, to cast out demons, and they are back from that mission trip, don't know how long, it was several days at least because they were told to uh, stay in one house while you're there. So there was at least uh, several days mission trip. Um, and so it had created, I'm sure, quite a stir. You had, uh, this was a great advertising campaign. Uh, they were going out to villages all around the Sea of Galilee and, and uh, preaching the news of the kingdom and healing and doing miraculous things. And I am sure there was quite a buzz going on there. And so in... And, Mark 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest a little while. For there were many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. Now, one of the things I wanted to mention about the Sea of Galilee area, the Sea of Galilee uh, you've all seen the maps in the back of your book. The, the Sea of Galilee is fairly small, but it's a big lake. I mean, it's not like Greg, the Great Lakes where uh, it seems like an ocean. Uh, the, Great, uh, the Sea of Galilee is something that is, it's, uh, well, it's actually uh, 13 miles long, north and south, and 8 miles wide. And so when someone went out on the, in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, there wasn't necessarily, they disappeared over the horizon and you, you didn't know where they were. So when they got in the boat to go somewhere, the people could kind of see where they're going. And so you can see the boat go across, where they're going to go over there, we're going to go around and we're going we're to meet them. So you have this 
uh, rush of people from all these towns, knowing that Jesus is on that boat out there, and if he gets to there, we want to be there. So they're going around the Sea of Galilee to meet him in that place. And picking up in, in uh, verse 33, the people saw them going, and many recognized them and ran there together on foot from all the cities, and they got there ahead of them, which makes me want to why did they take a boat if they could get there beheaded them? Never mind. Uh, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. And because they were like sheep without a shepherd, he began to teach them many things. And when it was already late, his disciples came up to him and said, This place is secluded and it's already late. Send them away so that they may go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Now that seems like a strange statement. Um, And so in thinking about this, it reminded, now they just came back from a mission trip um, where they did healing, they did casting out demons. He had given them a certain amount of power to, to perform miracles. And maybe he was trying to see, okay, let's see if they're how advanced in their spiritual maturity are they? Can they call upon God here and, and solve this problem? I don't know, but he, it seems strange here that you, you give them something to eat. And maybe it was simply a matter of uh, pointing out the hopelessness of the situation. Um, and they said to him, shall we go and spend 200 denarii on bread and give it to them to eat? But he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go look. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Now, 200 denarii is about a year's wages. So you can, you can see the idea of 200 denarii would, is an outlandish amount of money for, for them. And plus, the logistics of getting to towns where there was food and then getting it back to them, um, it was going to be, it was not going to work uh, in a conventional way for that. Um, in verse 38 there, he asked how many loaves. He didn't necessarily care about the fish, but he cared about the loaves. And that's kind of significant here. And one of the things that uh, we look at here also is that um, loaves, when we think of a loaf of bread, we think of the big wonder bread loaf. Uh, big, And you think, my goodness, a kid is carrying around five loaves of wonder bread? Uh, but that is not the kind of bread that was uh, typical at that time. Uh, bread that is, was uh, rose and you baked it as, as, uh, that contained yeast didn't last very long. So th- that kind of bread uh, was not very common. It was, what was more common is a cracker. Uh, so when we think of five crackers, okay, that, that seems, okay, a little kid, five crackers. That, that seems more reasonable shall we say. Um, And of the four Gospels, all four Gospels talk about this feeding of the 5,000, but uh, only John admits that they stole it from a little boy. (laughs) So so anyway, um, he ordered them and all to recline by groups on the green grass, and they reclined in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and two fish and looked up toward heaven, and he blessed the food and broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples again and again to set before them, and he divided the two fish among them all. 
And they all ate and were satisfied. Now, I looked up the, uh, the word satisfied here, and we might think, oh, you think of the, the Snickers commercial when someone gets hungry and cantankerous, and that satisfies their appetite until they can get something to eat. Um, the word satisfy here doesn't mean that kind of satisfy. I looked it up, the Greek word is kortadzo, to fodder, to gorge, feed, fill, satisfy. It is a uh, Thanksgiving meal satisfaction where you have gorged yourself, loosened your belt buckle, and are sitting, reclining, and taking it easy because you're full. You, you are satisfied, but it's, that doesn't seem to quite adequately cover the description. You have gorged yourself. <laughs> Um, and they picked up 12 baskets of broken pieces of bread and the fish. And there were 5,000 who ate loaves. Um, I don't know if the, the significance of how many baskets were, were filled is significant. Yes, there were 12 disciples. That's, that's possible. Uh, I think the more important part here to look at is the, the bounty of the leftover. Um, that, that is the important part here. Um, the 5,000, it talks about here 5,000 men. Now, that doesn't include the women and children. And um, so if we do some quick math, if, if most people were married, brought their wife and maybe some kids, let's, let's, protest, let's say there's... Uh, one wife and one child, you're, you're going to say there's probably at least 15,000 people. Um, but there could be as many as 25,000. Uh, how many people, now, we can throw out numbers here, but a visual is a lot more helpful. Do you, does anyone know how many people see, or can seat in the uh, Illinois Dome uh, down here with the basketball game, for basketball games? 18,000. Yeah, I, I read it on Wikipedia, or someone said 15.5. Uh, uh, that's probably just seating. I mean, I mean you can probably fit 18,000 very easily there. Uh, but that's what we were talking about, and that's probably the least amount of people that were there. Um, so you're talking about filling the stadium uh, and, and then supplying them with food, um, and Jesus saying, yeah, feed them. Do, do that. Really? Um, so it kind of gives you the idea of the numbers and the vast amount of, of people that we're talking about here. Now, the other thing here, too, is um, what does this miracle mean? And you might ask, um, why does it have to mean anything? It's a miracle. It's a miraculous thing. Um, but there does seem to be something that's significant about the miracle itself. Uh, for one thing, it's covered by all four Gospels, so that in itself kind of signifies some importance. In John 6, he writes this very soon after the, uh, the feeding of his account of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him... 
him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you might believe in him who has sent me. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it was written, and he gave them bread out of the heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not of Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is what which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. Now, what he's presenting him here is that he is the bread of life. And if, um, if you need more evidence that there's something going on here in Matthew, his soon after this, uh, this account of the 5,000, they began to discuss among themselves, saying, He is that because we did not bring any... He's saying that because we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 how many large baskets you picked up? How is it that you don't understand that I speak to you not concerning bread? but beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he, does not, uh, that he did not say beware of the leaven of the bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees. So even himself, he's pointing back to his, his miracle of the, of the, the 5,000. What was important about that was he was pointing out what was left over. His, the bread that he supplied these people and what was left over. And it was more than enough. If we continue in, in verse 45, uh, and immediately Jesus' disciples get in the boat and go ahead of him. Oh, let me back up here a little bit. Well, I'll, I'll continue this. And he immediately, Jesus and his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side to Bethsaida while he himself dismissed the crowd. And after saying goodbye to them, he left on the mountain to pray. Now, what, we, what Mark doesn't say, and John does, is that the people here were ready. They had seen enough. He's our king. If he can feed 5,000 people with, with these loaves, we're ready to make him king. And so they are wanting to forcibly carry that into action at this point. And it's possible that Jesus, seeing this, is saying, okay, disciples, we need to get out of here. This is not my intention and this is, uh, we need to separate ourselves from this situation. So they leave in the boat. Um, the, the next part of this story, I've, I gotta say, I find it a little humorous. Okay, I, I've mentioned before, I like to scare people. It's not a, it's not a secret. And the, the secret to scaring someone is is that they are so focused on one thing that they are not aware of the things going on around them. Okay, uh, because if you're not if you're not focused, you you see everything. Does that make sense? Um, but if I'm looking down at my paper, I'm focusing. I don't see someone coming up behind me or to my side. Okay, so what we have going on here is 
you're going to see the disciples are going to be distracted. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land, and seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night. Have anyone has experience on big body of water with wind? It is awful. Um, you, it is not calm. It is not peaceful. Uh, Colton and I went on a couple Boundary Waters trips. And if you're in a canoe in a strong wind and you're trying to get there and the wind is coming here, it is a struggle. Um, you cannot stop. If you stop, you lose ground and it takes twice as much effort to gain it. You have to keep the boat straight because if the wind catches the side of that canoe, it will spin you right around. And then you've really lost ground. So the, the, the amount of focus and determination to get a boat to there when you're fighting a strong wind is significant. And that's what we see happening here. A strong wind comes up, Jesus sends them off on a boat, and, and, uh, but he's seeing this all from shore. He, I mean, he's, he's, oh, they're out there struggling. And uh, Now, he put them in the boat, so he put them in a boat, before it was dark, assumedly. Uh, and now it's the fourth watch of the night. And John says they'd only gone three or four miles. So they've been out there rowing for eight to ten hours. That's struggling, my friend. <laughs> and uh, that's, that, that requires a lot of determination, focused effort to get going. Okay, So they're out there in a focused state trying to to go against the wind. And he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the water, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. Okay. Scared. This is like, you got to admit, Jesus was right on board here. He, he knew right at the time to, to do this. And it's no wonder they were scared. Um, the abyss or deep sea at that time was basically unexplored. I mean, how, how would they have had the opportunity to know what's in the deep? So the deep sea is thought of as a place where evil and demons come from. Okay, they're out in the middle of a lake, focused, rowing. And uh, this is a place where demons and evil ex resides. And then they see someone walking across the water. <laughs> I mean, I can see, this is one of those things where you laugh about later. Uh, in fact, I've been places where you think about something like this and you just start laughing all over again. I mean, uh, Peter's throwing John in front of him. Yeah! And, uh, you know, and you screamed like a little girl. Yeah, well, we all did. And Jesus is like, man, I got you guys good. But he's saying, take courage. It is I, don't be afraid. He had to say that. They were going to have a heart attack if he didn't. He got onto the boat with them, and the wind stopped, and they were utterly astonished, for they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves by their hearts, but their hearts were hardened. What do you mean they had not gained insight? They hadn't yet 
there hadn't yet been a confession made that he was the son of God. That is, that is coming within the chapter or two where he asked them. But they're not understanding this is the creator of the universe. This is God incarnate. They have not put that all together yet. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, this, over and came to the land of Gennesaret and moored the shore and they got out of the boat, he immediately, the people recognized him and ran about the entire country and began carrying here and there on their pallets those who were sick. To whatever they heard, to wherever they heard he was and wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplace and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his coat coat or cloak and all who touched it were being healed okay lots more healing going on still and in verse 7 the pharisees and some of the scribes gathered to him after they came from jerusalem and they saw that some of his disciples were eating their bread with unholy hands that is unwashed for the Pharisees and all the other Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thereby holding firmly to the tradition of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they did not eat unless they completely cleansed themselves. And there were many other things which they had received as traditions to firmly hold, such as washing of cups and pitchers, pitchers and copper pots. Okay, this was... This was typical pharisaical behavior. Uh, you have to know the background. We, and we look down on the Pharisees for this, these kind of rules and regulations they brought up. But in all fairness, if we recognize the history of Israel, they had disobeyed God at one point. God punished them. He sent them off to Babylon. They were captured. They were taken from their homeland because of their disobedience. And now they've been coming back and reestablishing themselves and not wanting that to ever, 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 ever happen again. And so what can we do to put in place to make sure that the people follow the law and never end up being disobedient again? So they put together a list of rules to help the guide them on how to implement Mosaic law. Um, and when you do that, you, you tend to go over the top. I mean, the, where, where does it end? Uh, and one of the crucial things is, is not working on the Sabbath. What, what constitutes work? What, and, and how do we define that? Um, and I was reading one, for one instance, um, if a Pharisee knew that he was going on a trip on the Sabbath, what he would do would uh, have someone or himself in the, day, the weeks prior or week prior is to take, I think it was described as his toothbrush, and put it along with his travel route to establish residence so that he could walk to one residence and then to another residence and to another. Therefore, he could get by with not actually working on the Sabbath because he was just, he was just walking from establishment residence to residence. That was one of the thousands of rules and regulations that was made up by the, what's called the Mishnah or Mishrash. Um, it wasn't written down until uh, I think 200 AD, if, if I'm correct, but it was, a, it was an oral tradition at that time. So this is the kind of thing that he was dealing with. 
And what he was talking about here, this washing of hands, there was no Mosaic law that required the washing of hands ceremony. This wasn't about making sure your hands were actually clean. This was ceremony of keeping you spiritually clean. There was a, a law that the priests had to wash their hands before they did the sacrifices. And there, logically, you could think how this progressed. If it's good enough for the priests, then it's good enough for us to do, and we should do it too. And so it becomes, it becomes a rule that we, we do. And Jesus here, um, well here, and goes on, and the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk with the accordance to the tradition of the elders, but eat the bread with unholy hands? But he said to them, rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you, you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. And in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commands of men, neglecting the commandment of men, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and the one who speaks evil of father or mother is certainly to be put to death. But you say, if a person says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban that is given to God, you no longer allow him to do anything for his father or mother, thereby invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things like that. What is Corban? Corban was a tradition where, let's say I had several farms, and um, Corban was, I will, when I die, this farm will go to the church. I'm going to donate this farm to the church. Okay, so that, so that is Corban. That farm is Corban. Um, but if my parents become sick and ill, cannot work or fend for themselves, they're getting older, wh whatever the situation may be, um, the law requires me to take care of them. But I've already, I've already donated this to God. So I don't have to spend the money on this farm to help my, my parents. And this is what Jesus is speaking to. And, and what's interesting is he said in verse 12 there, you no longer allow them to do anything. So this was, it could be that I would be that uh, evil to think not to care for my parents, but it seems that also the Pharisees are holding me to that. No, you cannot spend that on your parents. That farm you've donated to God. So there seems to be either both or, or uh, one of those things going on here, and Jesus points out the hypocrisy. There are many traditions that, that we have, um, some of which uh, are good, and, and, they're tr and, and their intent was good, um, but, uh, but sometimes we, we lift those up and be and almost to become doctrines. Um, one of the things I thought about is whenever Luke got here, he asked a lot of questions. Why, why, do, you do, it, why do you do it that way? I don't understand. Why, do you, uh, why don't you do that? Um, he had a lot of, of uh, catching up to what we do here, uh, whether it be fellowship meals, whether it be uh, a church picnic, baptisms, our order of service. Um, 
We have traditions, uh, not that they're bad necessarily, but how do, we, how do we treat those traditions? Have we lifted those up to become doctrine? That's the way it has to be, because you're not doing it right if we don't do it that way. Um, there are many such things that we, that we do. I could give a list, but I've got to get, get done here before 12 o'clock. So, um, but traditions are things that we put in place, and sometimes we can put them up so high that uh, it, it's doctrine, and, and we've got to be careful of that. And we have to actually look at what Scripture actually says with that. Now, this next section starts in verse 14. Um, he continues and kind of goes back to what they had called him and his disciples out on, and, uh, which was the idea of washing hands and being ceremonially un- you know, unclean. Um, because if you eat with unclean hands the implication was that what you take into your body then is unclean and makes you unclean. That's the implication. So that's why they washed their hands. After he called the crowd to him, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. Now this is, this is strong language. And, I, and, and for me, to paraphrase, he's coming, listen, everybody, come here. Let's get this straight. I want to make sure you're all clear on what I'm about to say Get ready, because this is going to be very important. Let's get this straight. All right. There is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which come out of a person are what defile a person. Now, I looked up the word nothing here. It seems (laughs) it's nothing. I mean, what's so important about the word nothing here? Um, But... Nothing in the Greek is udais, no one. It is a powerful negating conjunction. It rules out by definition, shuts the door objectively, and leaves no exceptions. That's a pretty good description of nothing. Nothing. Now, when he says this, he has to know how significant this is. And it and it's the reason why he makes it such a point. Come here. Get, get, come on. Let's get, I want to get this straight. Because this is going to be hard to hear. He knows this is going to be hard to hear. Um, because the, the Jews are so ingrained in the fact that there are, uh, there are dietary laws that they are to follow. Pork and, and shellfish and, and whatever else is is unclean, and they, they, they can't, they've been forbidden to eat it from as long as they have ever known, from generations to generations, we do not eat this, that is unclean. But Jesus here says a very specific word with no exceptions, nothing, nothing outside a person can defile him. And it shows how hard this is for people to understand. And we see this continuation of verse 17. And when he later entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding that you do not understand that whatever goes into the person, into the person from the outside cannot defile him? I also looked it up. But whatever, that's also a very inclusive word whatever nothing whatever 
Um, no exceptions. Um, because it does not go into the heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated. Um, basically, what he's talking about here is uh, you eat it, you digest it, you go to the bathroom, and it leaves you. Uh, that, is, that is the most accurate definition of what he said. Um, so, uh, thereby, Mark puts in his own little commentary, in case you have not understood what uh, I've been saying here. Thereby, he declared all foods clean. Now, there, are, there is a movement, I'm not sure if you're aware of it, called the um, Hebrew Roots Movement. Um, it is uh, a movement of Christians who believe that we have not been exempt from the dietary laws. Uh, God did not resend those. And so this is a very hard passage for them, and, and um, as obviously would understand. But they believe that thereby this commentary that Mark was, uh, was added later. Um, but I don't think, uh, based on what's before it, uh, well, just for your information, that is not in the King James. Uh, the, the commentary Mark is not in the King James Version, so they feel that that had been added later. Uh, but as scholars view, they have a lot more access to manuscripts than they did when King James was written. So I do not see the same um, caution about this particular statement. It, it seems to be actually, it's recognized as something Mark put in there, not that it was added, added later. And he was saying that which comes out of a person is what defiles him. The person from within, out of the hearts of people come evil thoughts, acts of sexual morality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and defile a person. Now, um, if you haven't seen yourself in that list there, then you probably haven't been looking close enough. Um, and uh, it's quite a list. And I think one of the things that, uh, that uh, the culturist, a certain aspect of culture believes that we are generally good people and we are evil because of influence, uh, only our parents. <laughs> and, and that may be true. Um, and uh, there is some of that, but we also know as, as parents, um, if you're a parent, you know that your kids pick up some things that they didn't learn from you. Um, that's, that's something that's, as a parent, you recognize. And it's, it's evil and sin is within us, it, 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 and it comes out in all, all kinds, kinds, of, uh, kinds of ways. Now, this next section um, I, I find... Very interesting. It's a small section. I'm not sure I've heard many people uh, preach on it. And uh, it's, it's one that I find very fascinating about the uh, Seraphonician woman. Um, see, I lost all my notes here. Okay, we'll see how this goes. We're getting, I'm going good. I'm going good. I got that down to the last paragraph here. And I think we'll, we'll get this finished up. Now Jesus got up and went from there to the region of Tyre. Now Tyre is a largely Gentile community. And it, so much so that my, someone might have even asked, why are you going there? I don't understand. This is not 
a place for a good Jewish person to, to hang out, and I don't understand why your ministry would take you there. And maybe he went there because, of, because it was a Gentile community that the, up, uh, the excitement and the uproar that's been going on, he could avoid a little bit because he could get away from the Jewish community, which was wanting to, to earlier make him king. And when he entered the house, he wanted no one to know about it, and yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing about him, a woman whose daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Seraphonician descent. Okay, she was a, a Gentile. And she repeatedly asked him to cast out the demon out of her daughter. Now, I, was, I found this interesting in that, are you familiar with the parable of the, of the woman and the unjust judge uh, who continually was pleading with the judge to uh, give her justice? She had been wronged, and she went pleading with the judge over and over, and finally, due to her persistence, he does give her justice. And, and the parable is talking about how this evil judge gave justice to this woman so wouldn't a loving God you know, be more willing for justice? Um, and so I, I see a similarity between that parable and what the, the, the woman here is, is doing. And he was saying to her, let the little children be satisfied. Oh, she asked for, to, for this demon to be cast out, and he, he said to her, let the children be satisfied for, first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Well, now, that doesn't seem like a very nice thing to say. Did he just call her a dog? Uh, in today's society of political correctness, he would have been smirched and his ministry would have been relegated to obscurity. He'd be canceled, canceled culture. Um, but I think it's important here to know that the Gentiles knew uh, how, the, how the Jews looked at them. Uh, they, were, they were called dogs by the Jews. And Jesus is, I think here, not necessarily calling her a dog, but attempting to show the Jews what is going about to happen here. The Jews here are represented by the children. In other words, again, he's using himself as, as the, the, the representation of bread, and he's giving it to the children. Um, and the, the dogs, of course, represented by the, the Gentiles. And what he's about to show is this comparison that this dog is going to have a better understanding of what this bread is about than the children are. And so the, the idea is not so much that he's calling her a dog, but he's calling out the, the disparaging uh, aspect of these two pictures, children, dogs, uh, something that you would, the children would be valued in this story, the dogs undervalued. And so anyway, I think, you ever have a time whenever you say, you know, I wish I would have remembered to say that in that moment. If I had just, oh, that had been perfect. And I, I, I do that all the time. In fact, I'll probably leave today after this message and say, oh, 
I didn't say that. I didn't say that in my message. That was important. They should have, that would have been perfect. This, uh, and that's one of the things I admire about this woman in this situation. She says exactly what I would have wanted to say in that moment. It's just, it's perfect. She said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. She gets it. She gets it. She is so in tune with who Christ is that even the crumbs from the table is something that she knows will satisfy him and heal her daughter. And when you look at the, the feeding of the 5,000, when you compare the, the amount of bread that was supplied to 15,000, 25,000 people, five loaves is crumbs. And, and it's interesting that this story comes right after that. And, and to say that's a coincidence, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't see that as a coincidence. I see that as, as tying this idea that this is the bread of life to supply all of our needs and beyond. Um, there are baskets left over. And he said to her, because of this, the demon has gone out of your daughter. Now, John uh, says it a little differently. Or no, it was uh, Matthew, Matthew 15. Matthew gives an account of this story well as well. And he says, O woman, your faith is great. And her daughter was healed. That is, that is an awesome statement. And uh, it's one I, I long for, for Christ for God to say to you, to me, Oh, Duane, your faith is great. Oh, Ani, your faith is great. Oh, Jerry, your faith is great. I think that's what we would long for in this situation. And for her, a Gentile woman, to hear those words from Christ is just an amazing thing. And, and think about what that meant and said to all those disciples sitting in that room, that this dog got it before they as children got it. Very significant. So if I guess if I, I'm still working out a title for this message, Jesus is the bread of life. He, he gives me contentment when my health, no matter what my health and financial situation is. He takes away fear of the known of future and the unknown future. He satisfies all my hunger for wealth and material gains that the world can never give. He changes my heart, and he is the source of all truth. We want this bread. This bread of life has so much to offer. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you for you as our bread of life. As we leave this place, may we desire that. Whatever bread and crumbs that you have to offer, recognize that that is more than enough for us. Help us to see that bread of life nourish us and give us all that we need in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.